Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, September 24th, we are studying Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 1 to 11. The Lord sends six executioners into Jerusalem to bring destruction upon his unfaithful people, but he also sends one messenger to mark his faithful people for deliverance. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Caleb Adams. Pastor Adams serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Bend, Oregon. Pastor Adams, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thank you very much. It's great to be back, and I think this is... Uh... I think this is the first text I've done with you that includes executioners and slaughter, so I'm looking forward to it. It it might be the first text that I've covered that covers executioners <laughs> and slaughter. We've 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 talked through some pretty gruesome things here through the scriptures. I mean, there were some parts in the Book of Lamentations I recall that was you know, with the talk of the famine. So there's there's been some some pretty brutal stuff, and today's text certainly has that. We we covered Exodus a long time ago, and of course the the Passover. I think we're going to get some echoes of that in our text for today. So with some of that in mind, and thinking about Ezekiel the prophet, what we've seen from his ministry so far, uh, what should we know going into the text we've got for today? Yeah, just a, a couple of quick things, maybe. Um, Ezekiel is, of course, a prophet of the southern kingdom because uh, by his lifetime, the the northern kingdom is no longer in existence. And so he's um, kind of part of that group that gets to experience the the exile and everything that, that leads up to it. So uh, we're told in, in the first chapter of the book that he's a, a priest and he had lived in Jerusalem, but he never never really got to fulfill all of those priestly duties because he's taken to Babylon in that first deportation um, before the before the Babylonians come back and just destroy everything. Uh, but when they come in about 598 BC, um, he's hauled off with a number of others and is in exile kind of before it's cool, uh, before everybody else is, is taken over there too. Um, and so Ezekiel is given these, these visions while he's over in Babylon He's kind of transported in the spirit, you might say, or in a, in a visionary way back to Jerusalem. And he, he sees these different things. So the kind of the famous, um, at least one of the, the well-known visions of Ezekiel takes place you know, right in chapter one, where he sees this, this vision of the glory of God and, and these, these four you know, winged creatures with a wheel below them. And there's this dazzling platform on which, you know, this incredible figure sits is, you know, the the embodiment of, of the glory of God. And uh, so then in chapter eight, right before our text for today, um, he's given the second vision about 14 months after the first one, where he sees these four abominations, um, basically of, of syncretism, kind of merging the worship of Yahweh with, with the worship of false gods and, and uh, paganism, and in some cases, just outright idolatry. So he sees this image of jealousy, and then he's taken into this room where there's all these engravings of, of different animals and um, idols that are being worshipped. And then these women weeping for uh, Tammuz, this false god. And then um, 
these, I believe it's the priests in chapter eight are actually worshiping the sun, uh, just overtly, shamelessly worshiping the, the creation instead of the creator. And so uh, at the very end of chapter eight, leading up to our, to our text for today, um, God says that um, all of these abominations uh, really culminate in the violence and, and bloodshed that has filled the land. And so God uh, promises really that he is going to come and, and repay and act in, in great wrath. And so that's, that's really what sets us up here in chapter nine with, with what we're about to hear, all of these um, accusations of idolatry and social injustice and violence and bloodshed and all of that um, are going to lead to really the imminent destruction of, of Jerusalem and, and its temple and, and pretty much all of its people. Yeah, I mean, this is a pretty difficult section of Ezekiel that we're reading, and it does really begin with that vision that starts in chapter 8, where Ezekiel is transported in the spirit to see Jerusalem. His priestly background shows through a little bit in this text, given the the nature of the temple and the importance of the temple within this vision, and that's going to be true in today's text as well, where Ezekiel sees things in the temple that would have been familiar to him from his training to be a priest. So let's jump right in. We're in Ezekiel 9 this morning. We're reading the whole chapter. It's just 11 verses long. And so we read the word of the Lord. Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen, with a writing case at his waist. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the Lord of the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen, who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others, he said in my hearing, Pass through the city after him, and strike. Your eye shall not spare, and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. Then he said to them, Defile the house, and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. So they went out and struck in the city. And while they were striking, I was left alone. I fell upon my face and cried, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? Then he said to me, The guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood, and the city full of injustice. For they say, the Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. As for me, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will bring their deeds upon their heads. And behold, the man clothed in linen, with the writing case at his waist, brought back word, saying, I have done as you commanded me. That's our text for today. That's Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 1 to 11. Pastor Adams, as, as we get started, he cried in my ears with a loud voice. Uh, remind us, we're, we're in the middle of this vision. Who is it that's speaking to Ezekiel at the moment? Yeah, that's a very good question, actually. Um, there are kind of a, a number of, of possible answers, but I think maybe the best answer is, uh, this is this is Yahweh, this is the Lord uh, speaking to Ezekiel, kind of serving as this um, 
this supernatural tour guide transporting him to Jerusalem, showing him all these abominations in chapter eight, all the the judgment that's going to come. Um, Back in chapter eight, uh, this figure is actually described a little bit. Uh, Verse two of, of that chapter says, then I looked and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man below what appeared to be his waist was fire. And above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. Um, as the narrative goes on, you you kind of see the the pronouns that are used, um, and especially um, I guess the the proper nouns that are used describe this figure as as the spirit of God, um, the hand of God. It kind of seems to to go back and forth. A lot of commentators have actually seen in. Um, in one of these figures that's going to come up, the pre-incarnate Christ. And so um, I I couldn't help but be reminded as I'm reading this description of Christ himself in Revelation, um, you know, where at the very beginning, John sees this vision and um, Jesus is described there in Revelation um, as one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. Uh, So there seems to be a a lot of kind of interchangeability between whether this is the Lord, whether this is the glory of the Lord, the hand of the Lord, the spirit of Yahweh. Um, And of course, there seem to be some pretty, pretty interesting connections between the way that that Jesus himself is described in later apocalyptic literature. So I think the best answer is uh, this is Yahweh, the one true God in one way or another, uh, revealing all of these things to Ezekiel. Right. I mean, as, as over and over again, you hear he is doing these things or, or later, you know, you will get specific, the glory of the God of Israel or the Lord Yahweh will be named as well. That's probably the best way to understand he. And, and you do see, I mean, it's, you know, it's maybe not as precise of language as we would read in the Athanasian Creed. But you do see evidence here of the fact that God is triune. The one true God is triune. You see this, you know, you hear the name Yahweh, you hear the glory of the Lord, and he's got this appearance like a man. Even though Ezekiel can't see it fully, you got the spirit of the Lord who's very active in the book of Ezekiel as well. And so, I mean, you, you do see that. So he, the Lord, Yahweh, that's who is continuing to speak to Ezekiel. And we've, we've seen this throughout the book, that Ezekiel is receiving the word of the Lord over and over again. The, the word of the Lord came to me, right? This is not, you know, Ezekiel's own mind playing tricks on him or, or coming under some sort of other influence, but this is the word of the Lord that he is given to speak. And it's, but it's said here in a very vivid way at the beginning of chapter nine, he cried in my ears with a loud voice. Why the, the vivid language here at the beginning of this chapter? Yeah, it really, um, it's incredibly vivid. I think it's, it's that way for a few different reasons. One is certainly to call to mind uh, the the importance of what's about to be said and done. Uh, but there also seems to be a, a pretty clear echo of the previous verse, uh, the end of chapter 8, uh, where Yahweh is telling Ezekiel that um, essentially Judah has, has been defiant. Uh, they've had chance after chance. I've called out to them, and they think that I don't care, that I don't see, that I don't know. And so uh, what he says, and we'll hear echoes of this also in, later in chapter 9, I will act in wrath, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And then he says, and though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. And so 
Yahweh is anticipating that when the judgment finally comes, uh, Judah will will finally cry out with a loud voice, and and essentially it, it will be too late. And so Judah, who may cry out with a loud voice, um, is going to to realize um, the judgment of God, and God announces this judgment um, ironically by crying out <laughs> in the ears of his prophet with a loud voice. Um, and so there, there's this, uh, this parallel here, this loud voice of, of God announces his coming judgment. Now that also, by the way, made me think of Revelation chapter one, that exact same uh, section that I was talking about earlier, where the, the voice of Jesus is described as a voice like the roar of many waters. Um, you know, so often in scripture, God's voice is this mighty and, and terrible thing. You think of Mount Sinai and um, here again, uh, the voice of God cries out loudly to announce the, the coming judgment. Mm. Yeah, it's amazing how many parallels there are with the book of Ezekiel and the book of Revelation. And we'll see some some more here in this text as well as we keep going through it. And so this loud voice of the Lord cries directly into Ezekiel's ears. And the language here, as you, you mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation, is probably surprising. Bring near the executioners of the city. The Lord calls for the hangman, essentially, to come and mm. execute his judgment. What, what do we see here? What's the Lord crying into Ezekiel's ears? Yeah, I mean, this, this isn't good news. Um, the Hebrew word there um, can be translated in a few different ways. Um, some translations say, I think, officers or captains, um, but there's definitely more than just a sense of of a leader or um, somebody that's that's come with an official mission. There's definitely a sense of of punishment of justice. So uh, some translations might say punishers. Another uh, possible translation of the word, which I particularly like, is avengers. Um, kind of brings to mind, I don't know, Iron Man flying around or Captain America coming, um, but Although uh, that kind of sounds fun, uh, these are very clearly uh, very dread figures, more like, I don't know, maybe the, the Hulk coming to, to completely smash and destroy you. Um, and in fact, the, the weapons that they carry, kind of the, the wooden translation of, of that term would be shattering weapons. Mm. Like they are, they're not just any weapon. They're weapons meant to, to shatter anything they they are wielded against, and so uh, Jerusalem and, and its inhabitants um, are in huge trouble. Uh, these executioners, punishers, avengers have come uh, to carry out a, a just and a very harsh sentence. Um, and so it, it does, you mentioned earlier, we have some, some echoes of the Passover event here. Uh, certainly these figures uh, seem very much in line with the destroyer that comes in Exodus chapter 12, where, where Yahweh tells the people, the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. Um, this, this figure that comes through and just destroys everything in his path. And so whether these figures are, are angels um, or angelic figures of some sort, that seems to be the case. And we're not told too much more about them, but, but their purpose is clear and their their power is clear and what they bring upon the people that they that they come into contact with is clear um it's interesting also i i keep going to revelation i guess uh i guess i'm uh, in that that mode right now 
Um, but, you know, in Revelation, there's kind of these cyclic visions of the wrath of God being poured out upon the earth. And uh, we have these seven angels in Revelation chapter 8 who blow these seven trumpets and, and pronounce judgment kind of like they do here. Here, of course, we have six avengers or executioners. Uh, but then we also have this this other um, mysterious figure <laughs> that accompanies them with this writing case. And so, of course, together um, they come to a to a total of seven. And uh, interestingly, Ezekiel notes not just that they appear or something, which often takes place in, in visions like this, but actually that they they come from the direction of the upper gate, uh, which faces north. So these these magnificent seven are, are coming from the place where the idol um, that provoked to jealousy, that image of jealousy at the beginning of chapter eight stood. And so um, they're very clearly coming uh, to exact the vengeance of God on the idolatry of the people. Yeah, the, the reference to the north, too, reminds me, uh, particularly in the prophet Jeremiah, he refers a lot to the enemy mm. from the north, and that would be Babylon, ultimately. So, you know, then and traditionally, I think, in the Old Testament, that's where the enemies of the people of God would come from, would be from the north. And so that that's a that's a pretty ominous direction for these figures, these six, probably angels. I, I think that makes good sense to consider them as angels, mm-hmm. per, perhaps in our common culture around us today angels are are thought of as as nice <laughs> that's you know but but angels are not necessarily nice in the scriptures you know serving as god's messengers <laughs> and and in the book of revelation again certainly we see them as mighty warriors executing judgment of god so i think to to recognize these six and and perhaps the seventh as well as angels makes good sense let's talk a little bit about this seventh one who's not called an executioner i don't think that that would refer to the six men it sounds like but then there's this this other one who's described like this he was a man clothed in linen with a writing case at his waist what what's going on with this guy who's who's he what's he well we'll talk about what he's here to do but what do we learn about his clothing and this writing case that he's got yeah so this is another case where i would say um, as often happens in the prophets and maybe particularly in ezekiel um, the prophet and, and God through him doesn't necessarily seem to be um, completely concerned about the specificity of these of the identity of these figures. Um, that being said, his purpose is clear. Um, many would also um, assume that he is a, an angel as well, um, someone sent by God with a message, with a mission. Um, and so a lot of commentators would would simply suggest that. Um, although, as, as we're about to see what he does and, and talk through that, uh, there seems to be a, a pretty strong reason that many have identified him as uh, kind of the, the high priest of heaven, um, the pre-incarnate Christ coming to, to save his people. Um, as I was studying this, uh, this chapter of Ezekiel, I was reminded of something that I, I think of often because I find it so fascinating, um, the commentary of Origen of Alexandria on Isaiah chapter 6, during Isaiah's incredible vision of of the Lord on his throne, high and lifted up. And what we have in that chapter are the two seraphim. Um, Well, I should say the seraphim. It doesn't specify the number, although it's a dualistic um, word there in the Hebrew. And so Origen's interpretation of of who the seraphim are in Isaiah 6 is that they are the Son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, because the word seraphim never appears anywhere else in the Bible. Um, it's a it's a dualistic word. And 
his point there is that one of the, the seraphs go and take a coal from the altar, touch it to Isaiah's lips, and, and essentially purge him of his sin. And Origen's comment um, is something to the effect of, this seraph absolves Isaiah of his sin, and who can remove sin? But Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Um, interestingly, over the course of time after Arius comes along, um, that interpretation of this angelic figure perhaps actually being um, the Son of God is is typically set aside. And so so that is something to, to pay attention to here as well, um, whether or not this is meant to be understood as the pre-incarnate Christ. I don't know if we can say with certainty, but we can say with certainty that he certainly points us forward to the Christ and, and to what his mission is going to be and, and what he comes to do. Yeah, I, I I think that's a helpful way of looking at it because it's it's hard to to say for certain with just what the text gives us whether or not we should understand this man to be the pre-incarnate Christ himself, particularly if we understand you know the pre-incarnate Christ perhaps is the one speaking here giving this vision to Ezekiel. Is he? I mean, it's just again, and that's that's the nature of of a vision and and recognizing that you know, we're not necessarily going to be able to pin that detail down precisely, but as you said based on what we'll see this man do and the command that he's given, what he does certainly is Christ-like in nature and, and points us forward to what Christ himself does accomplish for us, as we know from the New Testament. So I think that's a you know a helpful look at what the text says. Now, what about the way that he is described as clothed in linen and the writing case at his waist? How, how do those two details tell us something about this figure? Yeah, they're fairly unusual and, and kind of... Um, unique. They're certainly meant to communicate something. Uh, linen certainly marks him aside as having a different mission and, and purpose from the, the six executioners. Uh, linen is often worn by angelic messengers throughout the Old Testament, uh, but it also pretty notably characterizes the high priest and, and those in the priestly office, which, as you mentioned, again, Ezekiel as a priest would be especially attuned to these sorts of things. So at the very least, it seems to suggest that this is a, a figure coming from God, uh, who is himself pure and, and as we'll see, um, perhaps you could even say brings purity to those that, that he comes into contact with. This is another reason why some have been led to believe that this is the high priest, you know, Jesus Christ himself, um, pre-incarnate. Um, the writing case is interesting in that uh, we have a, a word that's used here, uh, keset hasofer. Keset is actually a, a word borrowed from Egyptian, kind of refers to a very particular type of, of palette with slots for writing pens and hollowed out places for ink and things like that. And so uh, we have this, this figure is, is this holy, maybe holy bringing figure who happens to also be a, a scribe. Um, there's a lot of parallels perhaps to um, Babylonian religion here as uh, Nabu was the god of scribes and the scribe of the gods. And he's kind of been made popular by probably the most famous Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, who bears the name Nabu in his own name. And so he was supposedly Nabu, the one who keeps the accounts um, of, of men on, on the tablet of life. Um, and so this figure seems to come and to, to take account of of the people of Jerusalem and to, uh, to spare some from judgment. Well, and that's, I mean, perhaps the, 
the surprise of, of this is that he does end up being one who spares. He's going to take a record not to mark down who gets to be slaughtered, but who gets to be delivered. I think that's, I mean, that's a, an interesting thing to, to consider, you know, with the, the, you know, the description of these six men with their shattering weapons. And then here comes the seventh ready to write stuff down. What's he going to be writing down? Maybe is that question that's lingering there. And and as we'll see, the, there's good news for what he's going to be writing. Before we get there, though, there's this one note here about where they go. They go in and they stand beside the bronze altar. What's what's that detail there for? Yeah, again, it's interesting because oftentimes when we have visions like this, they're not necessarily located in a particular place. But Ezekiel is at pains to say that they went in and stood beside the bronze altar, um, this altar that was in the center of the temple courtyard where all the sacrifices were supposed to take place. Um, Of course, by Ezekiel's time, it's no longer in the center where it's supposed to be um, because King Ahaz had moved it uh, so that it's no longer the center, um, metaphorically speaking, or even physically. He kind of shoved it into the northeast corner so that he could put his own pagan altar up. And so this this altar where all these bloody sacrifices have taken place over the years just so happens to be um, where these, these uh, executioners who are about to slay those whose God's justice demands um, stand ready. Mm, yeah, so I mean, is, and maybe a bit of... of tragic, I don't know, horrible irony that they're standing by the altar, a place of sacrifice, and now who's going to be slaughtered but these rebellious people in Jerusalem, as we'll we'll see as the text continues. Then we'll go ahead and take our break right there. You're listening to Sharp Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Ezekiel chapter 9 with Pastor Caleb Adams. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, September 24th. We are studying Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 1 through 11 with Pastor Caleb Adams. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Bend, Oregon. Pastor Adams, prior to the break, we left off at verse 3. And before we hear any more about these executioners and this one man in linen, we hear about the glory of the God of Israel moving. And this is a pretty significant event within the book of Ezekiel, something that we see begin in this text and will continue into further texts as a part of this vision. What happens with the glory of the God of Israel in verse 3? Yeah, so really these these few chapters in which our text is situated um, tell the story um, of Ezekiel witnessing God's glory departing from the temple, uh, departing from Jerusalem, departing from his people, which is an incredibly significant development in in the entire story of God's people in the Old Testament. Um, Yahweh's kavod, his glory, um, has has dwelled in the temple in Jerusalem for centuries, had moved with the people in the desert, and then uh, when the temple was built, God had promised that he would 
you would rest between the cherubim and the Holy of Holies. And um, here uh, it's, it's subtle in a way. The glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. Um, it's almost, almost as if God himself is, has decided to get up from his seat and make his way to the door. Uh, this is not a good development for Judah. God is on his way out. Um, and so he's, he's getting up and he's walking to the doorway. And from that doorway of the temple, he's going to speak out into the courtyard where these, these seven figures um, are awaiting his instruction. Um, but it is really the first step in, in a process that, that you might say is completed, at least in some sense, in, in chapter 11, verse 23, which, which says, The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. God leaving uh, his people, essentially, due to the their unfaithfulness to the covenant. Right. So it's almost like, I mean, the image that came to my mind was someone who's, who's leaving the home, and they, it's like he's packed his bags, he's got his bags by the door, he's standing at the, the door, and you know what he's going to do. You know he's getting ready to leave. He hasn't left yet, but that's kind of the, the picture here. He's getting ready to leave. And it is a, I mean, it, it would be a terrifying thing, I, I think, for the people of Jerusalem to think about, this is they've kind of been banking on this falsely, of course, that oh look, there's the temple, we're cool because God's there. And now to see him leave, this is this is pretty significant judgment just in that, it, even apart from what we're going to see these executioners be told to do and what they do, just the fact that God is getting ready to leave his temple is is a sign of great judgment already. Before we get to the judgment, though, we get, and we were talking about this before we started recording, that we have a, a pretty clear image of the gospel and, and dwelt on in the book of Ezekiel longer than, than what we've seen a lot so far. Ezekiel has brought up the idea of a remnant in a couple places, but he hasn't really developed it much. And in this text, we start to see some development to that theme with what this man clothed in linen got the writing case at his waist with what he's told to do. So he's told to go through Jerusalem and put a mark on foreheads of people, those who aren't happy with the idolatry that's happening. So take us into this, what I think is a pretty clear sign of the gospel here in Ezekiel. Yes, it's really fascinating, in fact, because not only um, is this figure told to to place a mark upon the foreheads of, of these people uh, to identify them just by virtue of the fact that they have a mark at all. But it's a, a specific mark. The, the Hebrew here literally says, make a, a tau or a tav, depending on your, your pronunciation of the Hebrew. So this is the last letter in the Hebrew alphabet, um, which maybe calls to mind kind of the alpha and omega stuff, since I'm apparently having to tie everything to Revelation today. But... Um, but it's also very significant, and and I don't think I came across a single um, comment on this verse that didn't mention that the shape of this letter in the ancient script would look like one of two things, either an X, um, like in our English alphabet, or uh, significantly a like a plus sign or a cross, um, which calls to mind for me a, a couple of things. You have the, you know, the letter chi in Greek, which is um, the first letter in, in Christ, which is significant in later Christian history. But the fact that this looks like a cross um, in a pretty significant way has been noticed um, by just about everyone who has, has read this, um, this passage. In fact, uh, Jewish groups in the second temple period, after God fulfills the judgment that he's talking about here and destroys the first temple, uh, they would continue to use the, the tower, the tav as a mark of righteousness, 
um, until eventually when the Christians start making a big deal of its correlation to the cross, that, that suddenly becomes unpopular um, at that point. Um, but it, it sure seems, seems significant that Yahweh gives gives this figure with the writing case that's this particular letter uh, to mark his faithful ones with. And you know, we we Christians today continue, uh, you might say, to be marked um, in in a very real way uh, by the the sign of of the Tao, the sign of the cross. Uh, Luther, you know, of course, in a small catechism, in the the morning and evening prayer, his instruction is first of all, make sign of the cross. And then proceed into the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, and and you can say this little prayer if you want to as well. But the sign of the cross is is significant, um, and that's not just the case for Luther. It's not just the case for us today. Um, it was the the case throughout Christian history. Uh, Cyprian has this great quote: "The sign pertains to the passion and blood of Christ, and that whoever is found in the sign is kept safe and unharmed." And then Cyprian also takes us uh, to the Passover, and that of course is. I think where we're meant to go, um, he says, when Egypt was smitten, the Jewish people could not escape except by the blood and the sign of the lamb. So also when the world shall begin to be desolated and smitten, whoever is found in the blood and the sign of Christ alone shall escape. So Cyprian takes us from, from Egypt to, to Babylon and Jerusalem and to the end of time. Uh, we have the, the Passover lamb uh, whose blood is spread on the on the lintel and on the doorposts and the destroyer, you know, the Lord himself, Exodus says, will pass over the door, um, will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. And of course, of course, we have to have some more revelation here, right? Revelation chapter seven, the, the 144,000 are sealed on their foreheads. At the very end of the book, chapter 22, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And so we have uh, this beautiful correlation um, of the, the cross of Christ, um, even in in uh, Jerusalem prior to the, the destruction by Babylon. Uh, those marked by the cross are safe. Hmm. Well, and, and that's where, so this, this man who's got the clothed in linen, the writing case, points us to Christ. Whether or not we should understand him to be Christ, that's one question, but they, certainly what he's given to do, marking the faithful people of God such that death passes over them, this this is what Christ does for us. And, and I, I'm reminded of, of Luther's Easter hymn, Christ Jesus Lay in Death Strong Bands. In, in Lutheran service book, it's stanza five that goes like this, Here our true paschal lamb we see, whom God so freely gave us. He died on the accursed tree, so strong his love to save us. See, his blood now marks our door. Faith points to it, death passes o'er, and Satan cannot harm us. Alleluia. And, you know, I mean, that, that beautiful imagery that, that certainly connects us to the Passover, the way it's fulfilled in the book of Revelation for us in eternity, that same thing is going on here, that the Lord is going to preserve his remnant. He is going to mark them as his own. He knows who is his own, and he will preserve them. Now, here they're described, the, the way that we see their faithfulness in this case is that they are those who sigh and groan over the abominations that are committed in Jerusalem. What what does that indicate about these faithful ones of the Lord? Yeah, I, I think we can we can draw a couple of conclusions. Maybe the the more obvious one is that they are the ones who are are grieved by what's happening. Uh, they're not going along with with the the status quo. They're not giving in to the idolatry that everybody else around them seems to be. They're not participating in that. They're not um, you know 
involved in the the violence and the injustice that's happening. And I think that's that's probably a a fairly safe assumption for the most part. Um, but I think maybe this is where the rest of Scripture can help us too. I think repentance is definitely something that is um, that here. Those who sigh and groan over everything they see happening around them, but um, I would say also who are repenting of their own sin, um, because very few of them probably were completely without any sort of um, identification with with those who are engaging in these things. And so um, sighing and groaning over evil uh, should always be the, the disposition of the Christian, and especially uh, sighing and groaning over the evil that we find within ourselves. Um, that's not explicitly stated here um, in Ezekiel 9, I don't think, but I think it's fair to um, to understand that that God's faithful people are such that um, seek to to follow him faithfully and not follow after false gods uh, while also acknowledging their own sin and finding their salvation in, in that mark of the Tao instead of in themselves and their own righteousness. Yeah, I mean, I think though that fits in very nicely. Again, maybe it's not on the surface of Ezekiel 9, but in terms of the fullness of biblical theology— it fits in with, you know, we think about what baptism does, sealing us, marking us as God's own, and then the way Luther describes the baptismal life in the catechism, that it is a daily drowning of that old man and rising to new life in Christ. I mean, it fits in well with this this same thought that this sighing, groaning would have been in, you know, their own repentance as well. I, I think it fits. I think it fits. Mm-hmm. So you, you've got the, the faithful who are marked by this one man, but then the other six are there as well. And as we've seen throughout Ezekiel and, and really throughout the prophets, judgment and deliverance go hand in hand. And we've talked about the deliverance. Now here comes the judgment from the six executioners. So they are told, don't spare anyone. I mean, and it, it's pretty vivid that everyone is listed. Old men, young men, maidens, even little children and women, they will all be taken into judgment and condemnation, but spare the ones who have this mark. Tell us again about how this is going to work out, this judgment that's described in verse 4. No, sorry, yeah. verse 6, 5. I've lost my place. 5 and 6. Yeah, there yes, five, 5 and 6, both, yeah, pretty much together. Yeah, um, it, it's almost as if Yahweh comes to Ezekiel and says, I, I've got good news and I've got bad news. What do you want to hear first? And Ezekiel must have said he wanted the good news first because here comes the bad news. Um, like you said, this is incredibly vivid, um, pretty pretty brutal, um, unsparing, and um, you know this is this is a vision that Ezekiel is having, but this will soon take place in in reality. Um, historically, the end of Second Chronicles. The story of the the long slide away from God, you might say, of of the people of Israel and then Judah, um, toward the very end of that book in chapter thirty six, verse seventeen, it says, "Therefore he, that is Yahweh, brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who would be Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all." into his hand. And so God's judgment here, um, aside from those faithful ones marked with the the mark of the the Tao, um, does not discriminate. Um, God's justice must be exacted on on all sinners. And um, that that kind of leads us into a discussion, I think, in this text especially, um, 
with this um, kind of juxtaposition of, of good news and bad news uh, leads us to consider the, the justice and the mercy of God. You know, a very, very common topic for, for us to talk about. Um, you know, we, we know that God love a God who saves a God who desires the well-being of all people. Um, you know, we hear that in the pastoral epistles that God, you know, desires all to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Even here in the book of Ezekiel, the same thing. Uh, chapter 18, verse 32, God says, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. God's desire is not for anyone to, to face his judgment, um, but God is, is just and he must um, he must execute judgment and and so um, God's mercy is seen in in the mark of of the Tao, which of course points us to the cross of Jesus and and that of course is the greatest and fullest expression uh, both of the justice of God as the harshest judgment of all that God has ever exacted um, is exacted upon his son Jesus on the cross. Um, but it is also, um, at the very same time, the, the greatest and fullest expression of God's mercy as, as we are spared. Uh, but here in Ezekiel, um, in, this, in these particular verses, um, it shows how, how serious sin is. Um, you know, you mentioned an Easter hymn earlier. There's a, a Lenten hymn that, that says, you know, he who thinks of sin but lightly, nor suppose his um, evil great, um, basically look to the cross. I should have the the hymnal in front of me so I can quote it and not try to mess it up from memory. But yeah, you want to, you want to see how seriously God takes sin. Look at what happens to Judah at the hands of the Babylonians. And you want to see an even greater example, look at the cross. And this is in line with, um, with how God has really always operated in justice and in mercy. We see that in Egypt, as we talked about with the firstborn in every house being struck down. I think Exodus says something like from the greatest to the least, essentially, without discrimination aside from from the mark of, of the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And we see it at the Red Sea where where really that's that's quite a, a brutal chapter also um, where you know explicit mention is made of the dead bodies of the Egyptians lying on the shore, um, the, the harsh judgment of God. Um, shortly after that, Israel goes into um, the promised land and they're instructed in a number of cases, kill everything that has breath, man, woman, child um, animals i mean it's it's very difficult for us to come to terms with that in some ways and the irony of course is that now um, the the judahites the israelites are not the ones slaughtering they're the ones being slaughtered um, receiving the the just judgment of god um, and that's that should be a warning for us just as much as we should be comforted by the fact that we are marked by the cross we should also be reminded of the judgment of god peter reminds us in in one of his letters, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And so God, God desires holiness from his people. And um, this all points us ahead to, to the coming judgment that we will all face. When Let's go back to Revelation. Jesus you know, comes on the clouds and every eye will see him and mourn. Um, we have a, a God of, of harsh judgment whose judgment um, we escape only because of, of Jesus taking that upon himself. Mm, yeah, that, I think that first Peter text that you brought out fits very well here because of how these executioners are told to begin at the sanctuary. It, it starts right there. As, as Jesus says in the Gospels, you know, to the one who's been given much, much is expected. And, and I think you, you see an example of that. And certainly a text like that 
calls those of us who have that mark of the of the tau, the mark of the cross on our foreheads, to to be vigilant in our repentance, that that we would stay and, and seek to stay in that repentance and faith, you know, taking that judgment seriously and and as we do that, rejoicing then all the more in the fact that the cross that's on us is a reminder that judgment that we deserve was poured out on Christ. And and I mean I think, yeah, certainly this is a text that that calls the faithful to repentance. Uh, lest lest that judgment fall upon us in the way that that is described here and and throughout the scriptures as as the text continues this and this probably surprised Ezekiel defile the house why why would the lord say to defile the house to these executioners this shows i think how seriously uh, god's judgment is going to fall upon them because up to this point uh, god has repeatedly reminded the people of the the sanctity of the temple. This is where I dwell. This is my house. And the people had responded to that by by themselves defiling the temple, bringing in the worship of false gods, um, engaging in, in all of these acts, uh, sometimes within the temple courts themselves. And so you mentioned earlier, as, as the glory of God kind of departs from the cherub and goes to the threshold, it's like a someone getting up, they're packed up, they're ready to leave. Now, uh, this verse, I think, is essentially that same person has been you know, pouring some gasoline on his way out, and now he lights the match of his beloved house and tosses tosses the match in. Um, you know, Yahweh is essentially saying, if, if you want this temple to be defiled, uh, so be it. Defile the house, fill the courts with the slain. And, of course, that, that verse that we heard earlier from Second Chronicles, that's exactly what happens. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar killed their young men with a sword in the house of their sanctuary. Um, the house is defiled. The holy house of Yahweh um, is holy no longer because God himself um, has commanded the defiling of his own temple. And as as harsh and, and as um, dark as that may be, I think there is also a, a glimmer of the gospel here because Jesus, of course, will come. And, and in the gospel of John, he, he says that he is the temple and, and what does Jesus do? He is he has the power um, to give up his life and to take it up again. And so Jesus embodying the temple allows himself to be defiled um, on a cross and to take his life up again, so that we might be spared uh, from from death and defilement ourselves. But I think that's why you know I mean as as frightening as it must have been to see the glory of the Lord depart from the temple. There is a, a bit of comfort in the fact that the glory of the Lord is not destroyed in all this. The temple <laughs> building is destroyed and defiled, but the Lord is still quite active. And and all of that, I think, is you know pointing us forward. And this is where Ezekiel is going to go, particularly as we get to the very end of this book and he sees a vision of a new temple. You know, he's always pointing us forward to Jesus as that fulfillment of this temple, which John goes there. I mean, what and. John wrote the book of Revelation. It's, it's, it's quite amazing, you know, how, how Ezekiel influences John, both in Revelation and then his gospel as well. But that's, that's probably another conversation for another show. But just, to, you know, when the temple is defiled, the Lord is still, he's still God. He still reigns, and, and he is still going to be there to deliver his people, as, as we'll see progress in the book of Ezekiel. We need to keep moving. The, the prophet then cries out, and unsurprisingly, and, and he acts, I think, as we see other prophets do, as a bit of an intercessor here when he, he says, Lord, are you going to destroy everybody, even the remnant? What What's going on there with Ezekiel's question? 
Yeah, well, as you said, you know, the, the glory of the Lord is departing the temple and soon it will leave altogether. Um, and so that, that could lead one to wonder if perhaps the Lord is not glorious anymore. You know, has, has the destruction of Jerusalem proven that the gods of Babylon are more powerful or something? Um, that's one concern. Ezekiel's concern is a little different. Ezekiel has no question whether Yahweh is supreme. He knows he is. Um, and that terrifies him. He sees this judgment being poured out upon the people and fears um, that everybody is going to be destroyed. Will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in your outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? Um, it could be an indication that Ezekiel himself doubted whether whether they were going to find anybody um, that was worthy of the mark, you might say. Um, you might have felt a little bit like Elijah. There's There's nobody left. It's just me, and now they're seeking my life too. And um, so Ezekiel kind of has this little, little bit of, of Elijah here, maybe a little bit of Moses trying to intercede for the people. You've promised to save the remnant. Are, are you going to destroy even them? Because he sees the magnitude of the destruction that is going to be coming upon the people and, and, and fears uh, for the remnant. Uh, but of course, we know, um, as Ezekiel has just seen, that God has already marked and, and spared and saved the remnant. Um, we can apply that to ourselves, not just by looking at those in Jerusalem in, in Ezekiel's vision, but as we've been talking about, we have the, the mark of Christ. And so I think we can learn from Ezekiel here that uh, we are right to cry out, um, to call upon God to remember his promises. Um, we are called upon to do that all the time. Um, we should also rejoice that even when everything appears hopeless, when it looks like all is lost, that God, I think in a very real way, has already rescued his chosen ones through Christ. I, I was reading in a number of different commentaries, I came across something that John Calvin wrote about this. Um, his take on this was that maybe the Babylonians did kill everyone, and the, the sparing that actually took place was an eternal sparing rather than a temporal one. Um, I, think, I don't think we can necessarily... Um, read into it that far with confidence, but it certainly reminds us that no matter what we may face in this life, no matter what judgment God may exact upon the world and, and everything around us, no matter how much chaos we may face, no matter what persecution we might face, um, I think especially in these days of, of Afghanistan and all that's been happening there in, in this past month or so, um, the faithful ones of God have been sealed, have been saved uh, for eternity. And so um, we will find out here that, that Yahweh doesn't necessarily um, comfort Ezekiel all that much. Uh, the comfort comes in verse 11 when the, when the scribe kind of reports back. Um, but yeah, Ezekiel cries out, and, and we see God's faithfulness. Mm. And, and, uh, just to kind of summarize how this goes, because we are running about three minutes here, and I want to get to that comfort that the, the text gets to. Yeah, essentially the Lord tells Ezekiel, look, this is going to happen. Judgment's going to come. It's going to be great, which you know, maybe, I, and again, I'm not sure if, if Calvin's comment is, is right on, or we can say, as you said, with confidence, but there might be something there that even if the righteous ones die in the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem, they are still marked with that towel. And, and I mean, I think that's where the vision of Revelation is so comforting as well, that, you know, even for those who, who die as Christians, they're still marked with, with Christ's own blood. And they are then safe for eternity, you know, the end of a mighty fortress, and take they our life, goods, fame, child, and wife, are 
although these are all gone, our victory's been won. I mean, I think that's, you know, that could be in, involved here. So again, with about three minutes, Pastor Adams, give us that, how does the text end on that note of comfort? And then as you reflect on this text as a whole, how do we take it? How do we see this as, as Christians and pointing to our Savior Christ? Yeah, so, I mean, Yahweh's response is essentially um, they're receiving what they deserve. They, they have this great guilt. Um, in fact, the Hebrew says very, very great guilt. Um, and so there will be great wrath. But then we, we have just this, this kind of interesting little verse, verse 11, and behold. So, you know, pay attention, you know, behold, the man clothed in linen with the writing case at his waist brought back words saying, I have done as you commanded me. So the executioners don't report back and and say, we've done what you've said. That's just brutally clear. Um, but he comes back and essentially says, mission accomplished. That saving, rescuing mission on which you sent me has been completed. Um, those who uh, who have been spared or those who should have been spared have been marked safe and um, the faithful and repentant, the, the remnant remains, right? And so this this dark chapter of, of death and judgment ends with this reminder of the gospel. And um, really, you know, if we are to um, identify this figure with the pre-incarnate Christ specifically or not, it certainly reminds us of the words of Jesus on the cross. You know, tetelestai, it is finished. It is done. I have done as you commanded me. Um, your people are are safe. And so, you know, as, as we just look back over this whole chapter, you know, what's the application for us? We've been talking about this throughout, but for one thing, uh, we are to take from this text, I believe, that God's judgment is, is very real. God's judgment is severe. God takes sin incredibly seriously, and the consequences of that sin um, are incredibly harsh. The wages of sin truly um, are death. Um, also, the, the, the road is narrow. Um, you know, we see this, this remnant and it's so small <laughs> that um, Ezekiel even wonders if, if they're going to remain um, among the vast majority of those in Jerusalem who are destroyed. Um, but the faithful few are, are redeemed, are saved. And that's, that, I think, is the ultimate takeaway for us Christians in this chapter, is you have been marked. You have been marked by the blood of Jesus like a cross on your forehead. You have been spared from the judgment of God. God's wrath was meted out on his son instead. God will accomplish his plans of salvation for his people. They cannot be stopped. And, and the mark that God has placed upon his saints will prevail. So incredible hope in the, the face of this incredible judgment. Pastor Caleb Adams is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Bend, Oregon, helping us today with Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 1 to 11. Pastor Adams, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you very much. It was a joy to be with you again. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Ezekiel, comments on the series, we'd love to hear from you. Please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.